Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue of Strategica, the future of the relationship between the U.S. and China. Joining us now is the author of one of the pieces in this issue, retired Admiral Gary Roughhead, former chief of naval operations and Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Admiral Roughhead, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. So let's start with sort of the big question, the, the future trajectory of, of China in media circles, in public policy circles, academic circles. We always come back to this debate about how we should think about China, whether this is more likely to be a cooperative relationship or an antagonistic one in the future. You're only a few years removed from your time in uniform. How do you view it and do you think the general sentiment is different in the military than perhaps it is in other sectors of society? I actually think that the way the military has looked at and continues to look at the relationship with China is that we uh, know that it will be competitive, but that there are also opportunities for cooperation. And I know that sounds uh, like I want it both ways, but, but as China rises and as they pursue their interests in the region and indeed globally, uh, we will find ourselves competing with them in, in various areas and in, in various ways. But I think it's also important, and and the military uh, is in the forefront of this thinking, in that it's better to be able to cooperate where the interests intersect. Uh, our military uh, seeks ways to, to do just that with the People's Liberation Army or the PLA. Uh, but we are going to have a, uh, a competitive, cooperative relationship as I see it going into the future. The key, I think, is in doing those things that, um, that make it more cooperative and less competitive and clearly uh, using cooperation to avoid friction uh, from developing and that uh, in turn which could lead to conflict. What, what are those things? What are some of the approaches that we could take that could maximize the level of cooperation between the two countries? Well, I think we're already doing it now, and I often would sometimes surprise groups in the United States and indeed even in China when I would talk and say that during my time as the chief of naval operations, we conducted naval operations with uh, the PLA Navy on a daily basis for the last couple of years that I was the chief of naval operations, and that was in the Somali Basin, off the east coast of Africa, conducting counter-piracy operations. We both have a need to make sure that the sea lanes of the world are safe and secure and that those sea lanes feed the prosperity, not just of our countries, but, but globally. And pirates, um, you know, don't contribute to that. So with China and with other countries, we worked together, we shared information, we responded to potential pirate attacks in a cooperative way. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's, that's part of it. We're seeing it play out today also in the search of, um, of both of our militaries and indeed other countries as well as we look for um, the, uh, the site of the crash of the Malaysian airline where – our airplanes, our military airplanes, 
are flying on the same mission out of the same airfield in Australia. So, you know, that's, an, that's another concrete, real example of how we're working together. We also look for ways to exercise with one another, uh, to build confidence in, in being able to operate more closely in the future. And it's principally in areas such as uh, search and rescue uh, and response to humanitarian disasters. We both uh, operate hospital ships, which have been brought into service whenever there is a significant um, uh, you know, human emergency, whether it's a, a tsunami or a typhoon, as recently happened in the Philippines. And so in preparation for those, we do some basic exercises with one another that, um, that add to this sense of cooperation and ability to cooperate. The other thing that is a rather significant event that's coming up is uh, every two years, the United States Navy hosts in Hawaii the world's largest naval exercise. This year, for the first time, China will participate in that exercise. This is a significant step for both navies. And, uh, and, and, but it does allow us and the PLA Navy to work together in some more sophisticated uh, venues that, again, add to the potential for future cooperation. So let's talk about the pivot to Asia. This has been one of the more pronounced foreign policy initiatives of the Obama administration. And you write at Strategica, quoting you here, our rebalancing approach is right and can address our strategic concerns, but it must be substantive. It cannot only be pronouncements, sound bites, tweets, and what sounds good on the talk shows. Okay, walk me through this. What does a substantive approach look like and how aren't we fulfilling it right now? Well, I would say that the most significant thing that we have to deal with is how do we maintain our range of obligations globally, but also to deliver on uh, what I consider to be, as I said in the piece, the right policy of rebalancing or putting more emphasis on the Asia-Pacific region, or as some people talk about it, the Indo-Pacific region to encompass the Indian Ocean. And when I talk about doing it in a substantive way, it really uh, gets down to making sure that we are investing in the right capabilities and in the right numbers of those capabilities so that we uh, are able to preserve the options that we want to have in our kit bag in the Asia-Pacific region. It means that we need to work closely with our allies and our like-minded partners so that the level of cooperation and the ability to work very closely together is, uh, is instinctive. And, and that really comes down to the types of investments that we make. And I've often said that uh, a military is what it buys. And it's great to talk about rebalancing, but if all it is is rhetoric and we're not investing in the types of capabilities that we need to operate freely in the Western Pacific and in the Indian Ocean, then it's pretty superficial. And so that's what I was getting at there. It also means that we have to have within our military 
and you know, I come at it from the naval perspective, people who understand the region, who understand the partners with whom we'll be operating, but who really have great familiarity with the region, with the issues, with the types of capabilities we would find ourselves against. And again, that takes making the right investments to do the practice. It's, it's very much like a sports team. Uh, you know, you can talk about winning the big game, but it's the preparation in winning that game that makes all the difference. And so that's where I was coming from. To that point, knowing the issues, knowing the region, can you give us just a, a short tour of the regional implications? If, if China's power isn't kept in check or if China develops in a more aggressive way, by which I mean the focus in the American press, understandably, tends to be America. Uh, the bilateral relationship between Washington and Beijing. But if China becomes more powerful in the region, what are the implications for Japan, for South Korea, for some of the other countries in the area? How do you see that playing out? Well, I think it's clear that China's military capability, as long as their economy stays on the trajectory that it's on, that military capability is going to continue to grow and continue to increase. Uh, that is not anything unusual in history. We've seen that with the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch, the British, uh, and indeed the United States. As an economy rises, as the capacity to field a military grows, that, that those countries will, will develop uh, a significant military. In the case of the Chinese, they're developing uh, the most significant regional military force in the Asia-Pacific region, in the Western Pacific particularly. And the other countries in the region are watching that very closely. And uh, on top of that, there are some points of friction. Uh, there are maritime disputes between China and Korea. Uh, there are maritime disputes over some uh, islands in the East China Sea. Uh, the Japanese refer to them as the Senkaku Islands, and, and the Chinese refer to them as the, the Diaoyutai Islands. And uh, they have competing claims. And uh, that is, in my view, uh, the East China Sea is, is the most volatile area in the Western Pacific today. If you move down into the South China Sea, China and several of the countries uh, there have some competing claims. Indeed, some of the other countries have competing claims with one another. But the, the one that is generating the most friction right now is between the Philippines and China over uh, essentially a reef that the Philippine government uh, seizes theirs and the Chinese government seizes theirs. And unfortunately, when you have situations like that and you bring air and naval forces together that are trying to demonstrate resolve and, and, and protect their respective claims, the potential for an accident or a misstep or overly aggressive behavior uh, can need, lead to a clash that then has the potential to accelerate. So I think those are the areas that are most concerning. And our friends in the region, our allies in the region, are seeing this growth of the of the of the People's Liberation Army and the Navy and the Air Force, and it's causing great concern. And in a way, it's causing the countries in the region to build up their military forces as well. Korea and Japan already have substantial and very good uh, military forces. 
Vietnam is investing in submarines, something they've never done before. Malaysia just signed a strategic agreement with Vietnam. And I maintain that these are being brought on by uh, an uncertainty about China's intentions, a lack of transparency into China's intentions and military capabilities. So all of these are combining to uh, to cause a bit of unease in the in the Western Pacific. Admiral, let me read to you a brief excerpt. This is from an editorial that appeared last month in the Taipei Times. Quote, as the world saw pro-Russia forces in Crimea taking control of Ukrainian military facilities while Russian troops moved into the Crimean Peninsula, one dreads imagining what would happen in Taiwan if it were put into a similar situation, end quote. Now, to be sure, this is an, an imperfect analogy for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the extent for, to which American protection of Taiwan has been an explicit policy priority for a very long time in a way that you can't really compare to Crimea. But the reaction of a lot of people in the United States to Russia's advance into Ukraine has been essentially – so what? You know, this is an area that has an awful lot of significance to Moscow, very little to us. There are cultural and historical ties. Yes, they probably shouldn't have done it by force, but we can live with the new status quo. It strikes me that someone so inclined could apply the same line of reasoning towards a Chinese effort to take back Taiwan. So for anyone who's tempted towards that line of thought, uh, I'll ask what seems to have become an increasingly prominent question in American foreign policy over the last few years. Why should we care? Well, I, I think we should care for several reasons. One is that the the importance of the Western Pacific and the maritime environment in the Western Pacific is extraordinarily important uh, to the global economy. Uh, if that gets disrupted, it will send reverberations uh, globally. But I would uh, also say that the most uh, significant aspect is that uh, that we have obligations to our allies and uh, like-minded partners. And in the case of Taiwan, uh, we are governed uh, by a, a series of agreements. And I think that it is important uh, that our allies and those who stand with us understand that we fulfill our obligations. And, and that is uh, something that is extraordinarily important. And if it is chipped away at in any way, it causes a lack of confidence in our future credibility uh, going down the road. Final question, and I guess this is more of a request really. In your piece at Strategica, at the very beginning, there is a striking story about an encounter that you had in the 90s with a senior leader of the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military, that underscores a significant difference in how or two countries think about the world and think about defense. Would you share that story with the audience? Uh, I will, and it's something uh, that has that really shaped my thinking um, early on. And what happened was, as a as a much younger officer, I happened to be in a conversation in the mid '90s in China with a very senior PLA officer, and we asked the question if China was interested in obtaining an aircraft carrier in their Navy. And 
this elderly officer said, yes, we are. And we then said, well, when would you like to have that? And I'll never forget it. He looked up at the ceiling and he thought for a moment and he said, in the short term. And when we asked him what the short term was, he thought for a moment and then he said, 2050 would be good. And and that really hit home with me that as we look at China and indeed Asia more, more broadly, but really specifically China as it builds up its military capability, it has a much longer time horizon than we have. I often would jokingly say that, um, you know, whereas China would say the short term is 2050, uh, which was about 55 years uh, from the point when we asked the question, they refer to that as the short term. Our short term is about 15 minutes from now. And so right. when you look at, uh, at how they're looking at developing military capability, they see a very long process, very patiently moving forward. And we sometimes like to simply snapshot and determine where people are. And I think it's very important that as we look toward China, we look at the type of relationship that we want to have. We look at the investments that they're making. Uh, they are looking at this over a much longer time horizon. And I think we have to keep that in mind, that what may seemingly be a small development or a small change is part of a much longer process that we should not take our eye off of. And as you note in the closing of your piece at Strategica, they did not have to wait until 2050 for that aircraft carrier. They did not. Um, and it came on much faster. Um, as I uh, said in the piece, about 37 years ahead of schedule. Uh, I would add, however, that their aircraft carrier is no match to ours. But I believe that it's indicative of the, this very methodical, very protracted approach that China has toward developing a range of capabilities. We need to be mindful of that. We should be looking at things over the long term, have a long view of not only where we want to be with the relationship, but what are the things that we have to do today that allow us over this longer period of time to have the type of relationship uh, that is more cooperative with China than competitive and only if we have that long view, I believe, can we manage a strategic relationship with China uh, that will be in the best interest of both countries, the region, and indeed globally. Our guest has been retired Admiral Gary Ruffhead, former chief of naval operations and Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. You can read his piece and those of other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Admiral Ruffett, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. I enjoy it. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.